EM Guidewire, hard-hitting emergency medicine from Carolina's Medical Center. Welcome back, everyone, to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the residents and faculty from the Emergency Medicine Training Program at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. It has been a while since we last chatted, and I would like to say that it was part of the plan, but let's be honest, the pandemic has altered all of our plans, and who knows what plan we're running right now. But we are back, and we have lots of new topics and content, and we even have new talent In the coming weeks, we promise to bring you high-yield and insightful information about emergency medicine and the topics that impact us, our colleagues, and our patients. We will also be adding a new series that looks to explore the unique perspective and vantage point that the emergency medicine intern has. I'm certainly looking forward to hearing that one for sure. Today, however, we jump back into the fray with two of our emergency medicine chief residents, Drs. Cravens and Kastner. There is no better way to begin than to begin with penetrating wounds to the chest. So let's plunge on in. This is EM Guidewire. Hey everybody, my name is Matt Cravens. I'm one of the third year emergency medicine residents at Carolinas Medical Center and one of the chief residents. Hey everyone, my name is Mark Kastner, also one of the third year EM residents at Carolinas Medical Center and also uh, one of the chief residents with Dr. Cravens here. All right, guys. So today we are going to be talking about penetrating cardiac injuries. So uh, without further ado, let's just go ahead and get right into a case. Sound good, Mark? Let's do it. All right. So, Mark, you are working in major and you are responsible for manning the medic radio when you get a call for a 36-year-old guy and he has a gunshot wound to his chest and back. Medics are going to be there in about five minutes, but they're telling you the vitals. He's tachycardic to the 130s. They are not able to get a good blood pressure at this time. Um, but saturating well on a non-rebreather mask and a GCS of 15. So what are you going to do? Wow. Well, this is certainly a scary situation, but unfortunately we see it quite often. You know, step one is I know I'm going to need really good access in this patient um, since he's tachycardic and um, has a penetrating chest trauma. So I'll make sure I get our uh, cortices out, which is our large bore um, central access catheters that we have. Make sure I have um, an arterial lime kit out just in case we need that as well. And since this is a penetrating wound to the chest, I certainly want to get chest tube stuff ready, including our chest tube kits and all the procedure stuff necessary for those. And just in case, I'll probably get the ED open thoracotomy tray ready um, in case we need that one too. And certainly before the patient gets there, assigning roles to everyone, making sure I have my trauma nurses, my rapid transfuser nurse, my MTP tech, and, you know, all the, all the appropriate parties necessary for that. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think one of those roles has to be ultrasound. You know, with the, the thing with penetrating cardiac injury that we're going to be able to diagnose is with an ultrasound put on the heart as soon as the patient rolls into room one. So totally agree with that. Um, all right, Mark. So the patient is being rolled in. Uh, they got a non-rebreather mask on, look a little pale and clammy, but currently responsive. And they get the medic stretcher right next to the bed. What, what is your first move? My, my first move is definitely going to get a good report and get the patient on the monitor, a good set of vitals, and making sure we have some bilateral uh, large-bore IV access. And if we don't, you know, addressing that in the moment. And then um, certainly starting with my ABCs with whoever's doing my primary survey. And like you mentioned earlier, I definitely want to get the ultrasound on the chest as soon as possible since the patient's already showing signs of shock. Um, and so I want to make sure that I uh, assess for all types of shock, including in this case, cardiac tamponade. So I'm going to get the ultrasound probe and my first look is probably going to be sub-xiphoid on this patient's heart. All right, awesome. So the patient's moved over. Your nurses are expert at uh, getting bilateral large-bore IV access with 16-gauge IVs. 
you get that probe on the patient's heart and you see a large pericardial effusion. So I put the ultrasound probe on the heart and I see a large pericardial effusion. And next, I'm going to look for signs of tamponade. Right. So exactly right. What are you looking for when it comes to signs of tamponade? I'm looking for a collapse of the right side of the heart uh, during diastole, meaning the heart can't fill um, because it's being compressed by the surrounding blood and the pericardium. Yeah, totally. So your, your obvious signs of tamponade are going to be when you have right ventricular collapse during ventricular diastole, when the ventricle should be relaxing and expanding, instead it's collapsing. Some earlier signs might be if you have right atrial collapse during systole. And then you should definitely look at your IVC, which should be pretty plump and non-collapsible. It should have less respiratory variation than you would typically expect. All of these things in the right clinical setting can suggest tamponade. So Dr. Cravens, what do I see on my ultrasound then? Do I see RV strain? Well, you see a large large effusion around the heart and you see some right-sided collapse. And it's, it's in fact so pronounced that it's pretty hard to tell the Uh, whether it's occurring during diastole or systole. So uh, you do get a blood pressure on this patient, and the systolic's in the 70s, but again, maintaining his uh, cerebral perfusion because the patient's still talking to you. What are you going to do? Well, now I'm already thinking of somehow decompressing that pericardium, um, whether it be, you know, the patient is not pulseless, so I don't think meets criteria for an ED thoracotomy at this point. My next step would likely be to uh, make sure the patient doesn't also have a pneumothorax, probably with the ultrasound machine right there in my hand, and uh, also thinking about ways to um, decompress the pericardium with the pericardiocentesis in the room. Awesome. So I, I love that you know, you're, you're thinking, yeah, this patient is in shock and has signs of tamponade, but is also a trauma patient with a penetrating wound to their chest. So uh, just because they have a cardiac injury doesn't mean they don't also have a tension pneumothorax. It doesn't mean they don't also have hemorrhagic shock or spinal shock more rarely. So um, totally agree with you. You you do want to make note of that. And I, I think in this patient, you need to prepare for immediate uh, intervention. Now, I think this a lot of this depends on where your shop is, because this patient is definitely going to need a very rapid intervention. But here at Carolina's Medical Center, we're a level one trauma center for Uh, a trauma activation like this, we have our trauma surgeons in the room, and we have the capacity to go to the operating room uh, within 10 minutes of this patient's arrival. So the patient will definitely need uh, immediate decompression. The question is, does that happen in the ER or does that happen in the OR? It sounds like this patient is pretty sick and in shock, although the patient is maintaining their mental status, which is definitely a reassuring sign. Um, So I think, you know, given how fast we can get someone to the OR for an operative pericardial window, I think it would just be mostly a discussion, but I also would be preparing for a pericardiocentesis in the room in case the patient started to get worse quickly because the patient obviously is already in a shock state right now. So certainly I'm getting sweaty and the patient hopefully is not diaphoretic. So, all right, we're going to go ahead and start resuscitating this patient. We'll give some blood products. Uh, and I think that you're definitely going to want to have a, an 18-gauge spinal needle or maybe a triple lumen uh, central line kit with that 18-gauge needle available in case this patient further decompensates. Now, if the patient codes, I think we, you know, we're, we're all on board with the fact that this patient needs an ED thoracotomy. But um, let's, let's say for, for the purpose of discussion that you're able to give this patient some blood products, they actually have a moderate improvement of their vital signs, and they're taken to the operating room for uh, a pericardial window to relieve the tamponade, followed by a median sternotomy to uh, repair their cardiac injury. Oof, that was a close call. <laughs> All right. Well, let, let's talk through some uh, some of these 
less obvious cases, okay? So we, we manage a lot of penetrating trauma here at Carolina's Medical Center, and there is often a question of could there be a potential cardiac injury? Most of the time, we're not going to get it with such frank signs of tamponade on ultrasound. So talk me through, a patient comes in with a similar story, but you maybe don't see that initial pericardial fluid, and you certainly don't see tamponade on your first ultrasound. But they have a wound to the box. The cardiac box is defined by the thoracic inlet superiorly, the costal margin inferiorly, and between the nipple line laterally. So if they have an injury to the cardiac box, and you're highly suspicious for a penetrating cardiac injury, but with a negative initial ultrasound, what are we going to do with that patient? You know, I think our role as ED physicians is certainly to rule out the life-threatening injuries in the immediate uh, in the immediate setting in the trauma bay. And so making sure we're not missing a pneumothorax, making sure we're not missing a pericardium. But if all that's negative and the patient is not in shock, then certainly um, you have the opportunity to have a discussion with your trauma team, whether you're transferring them from a community site or you're at a level one trauma center like we are here um, about the patient's ultimate disposition. Now, you know, it sounds like the patient is going to need operative exploration and I would leave the route of that method up to the surgery team themselves. But, you know, not someone we're sending home, certainly. Yeah, I agree with you. I think we have to have a high suspicion for this injury. And, of course, our initial uh, imaging modality is going to be with ultrasound. Um, I think one thing that sometimes gets missed is the ability to repeat the fast uh, cardiac view. So uh, I've had cases where we've repeated it up to three or even four times while a patient was in the trauma bay. Um, certainly, it should be done immediately. And uh, I would say probably after the chest x-ray is shot as well. Uh, obviously, you don't need a large amount of acute fluid to cause tamponade in these patients. So whereas you might not see anything on in your initial view, you may see the development of uh, a pericardial effusion on following ultrasounds. The, otherwise, this patient certainly needs a chest x-ray. I agree your uh, initial point of moving the probe over to the lungs to make sure the patient has lung sliding, doesn't have tension pneumothorax causing their shock. So, you know, ultrasound chest x-ray, repeat ultrasound, repeat ultrasound. What about what about the CT scanner? Should this patient leave the ER to go for a, a chest CT? I mean, I think that depends on a lot of things, right? Like one, is the patient stable? If the patient's not stable, it sounds like we've already determined their disposition is likely the operating room. If they're stable and you have more time to kind of think about the best way to take care of the patient, I think certainly a CT scan of the chest is going to help you. And likely, depending on the trajectory of the bullet, you're going to CT other things, probably the abdomen and pelvis and maybe some spinal imaging as well, depending on where the bullet entered and possibly exited. Um, And so, you know, ruling out additional injuries, too, is going to be important, esophageal injuries, lung parenchymal injuries, hemothorax, rib fractures, and then if the bullet goes low, you obviously have to worry about intra-abdominal injuries too. So I think if you have a stable patient with a penetrating wound to quote-unquote the box, certainly if they're stable enough to tolerate a CT, I think it can help provide you with a lot of uh, additional information. You know, I think a lot of it's going to depend on your clinical practice at your institution. So uh, you make a great point that CT can definitely be useful in a stable patient for finding out other traumatic injuries. Um, In talking to our trauma surgeons here, in a patient with high suspicion for penetrating cardiac injury, but no definitive findings on ultrasound, those patients are going to go to the operating room. They're going to have a a subxiphoid pericardial window performed, and that will definitively diagnose whether they have a cardiac injury or not. So, you know, I, I don't think we use CT here as much for cardiac injury. I was listening to a podcast of, with Dr. Dennis Kim, Trauma ICU Rounds, where he talks about their experience over in California. And they have been 
more aggressive on pushing the envelope for using CT. Uh, I think specifically cardiac gated CT to evaluate these patients, but that's not, not something that we do here. And I think probably not done at most places at this point. Right. And I, and I feel like if I'm at a community site where, you know, my trauma team, I don't have a trauma team in-house and ultimately the patient's disposition is going to be transferred to a larger trauma center. I think, you know, getting additional imaging, if you have the time to, probably would help rule out other things, but again, isn't going to rule out necessarily cardiac injury. Um, and, you know, they likely need operative exploration of some degree. Right. Yeah. So, so far we've kind of put these patients into a few different boxes. One box would be high suspicion for penetrating cardiac injury given the mechanism and the location of their injury externally, but no definitive findings on ultrasound. And these patients are going to be the ones that eventually will need the operating room. If you're at a trauma center with surgery available, they will likely go quite quickly to the operating room. But these are the patients, if you're at an outside ER, you're likely going to have to transfer. Um, the second category is when we talked about with the first case, which is a patient with obvious tamponade, um, these patients, uh, you know, they, they need an immediate intervention. Now, if you have an operating room that is immediately available to you, they can definitely go there for a pericardial window followed by a median sternotomy to repair the injury. But what if you're at an outside ER and you are transferring this patient? First of all, how are you going to package them up for transfer? This is a patient that has a tamponade on ultrasound, are you going to just ship them in a BLS ambulance, or what's the plan here, Mark? Definitely going to get some sort of a critical transport, whatever I have access to quickly. And hopefully, if the weather's great, we can fly them there to get them there quickly. If that's the you know the best option at that time. But what comes to my mind is you know this patient, if they're if they're having evidence of shock, I certainly want to try and intervene um, because I don't think they'll be stable enough for transport. They'll likely decompensate in transport, and so draining some of the pericardial fluid off just enough to relieve the tamponade for transport, I think, is certainly the ideal situation. If you know you're able to, or I'm able to in an outside facility. And ideally I'd like to leave a, a catheter. in if I have access to one that way in route, they can drain off some additional fluid if the patient becomes worse. But what I also worry about is intubating this patient. This doesn't sound like the patient that I'm going to want to intubate in a freestanding ED, because if I increase their intrathoracic pressures, I'm going to make things worse when they're on a vent. Yeah. I think if you intubate this patient, you're going to push them into the third box, which is patients who have evidence of penetrating cardiac injury that code. Now that that patient is a lot easier to, to take care of, at least in terms of the uh, obvious next step, which is an ED thoracotomy if you have surgical backup. Um, I think that, you know, you, you make a great point. It, it, patients with penetrating cardiac injury and uh, evidence of pericardial fluid that are not going to be able to go to the OR quickly, those patients probably need some sort of pericardial drainage. I took a look at a 2014 retrospective review at Denver Health of patients that um, were randomized either to getting pericardial drainage in the ED or operative drainage. And this is done by, by trauma surgeons and published in the American Journal of Surgery. So essentially, in these patients, what they found is there is no significant difference in the median time to operating room uh, between patients that get drainage in the ED versus in the operating room, and that there was actually a mortality of 12% in the patient's drain in the ED versus an overall mortality of 23% in, 
in patients that were drained in the operating room. Now, there's a lot of caveats to this study. This study was really small. There was only 17 patients in the ED drained group and 22 in the operative drained group. And uh, it should be noted that there's a big difference between the two populations. The ED group all had a fast positive for pericardial fluid, whereas only 68% of the operative drained patients had a positive fast. So I think that this is not something that's going to change the way that we practice here at Carolina's Medical Center, where we have the ability to operatively intervene quickly. But I do think that in general, if you have a patient that cannot immediately go to the operating room and is hemodynamically compromised with a pericardial fluid stripe on ultrasound, those patients probably need drainage in the ED prior to transfer. And I agree, I would leave a catheter if at all possible. So let me recap this. So penetrating chest injury. I'm in a freestanding ED by myself. Patient comes in, is in shock. I'm concerned for tamponade or tension pneumothorax. I rule those life-threatening injuries out with ultrasound at best. And so I see pericardial tamponade on my ultrasound. And I know I have to transfer this patient 30, 45 minutes away to the nearest trauma center. And if they're decompensating, I'm going to drain that fluid. I'm going to drain it whatever best way I can in that facility, whatever tools I have at my hand or, or at my disposal. Uh, drain that uh, enough to relieve some of that tamponade physiology, get them a little bit more stabilized before I transfer them somewhere where a trauma surgeon can intervene with an operative intervention, likely a pericardial window. If I'm here or at level one trauma center or or if I'm at a trauma center with um, immediate trauma surgery backup, I can hopefully keep them stable with draining off some fluid as well, but most likely don't have to place that catheter in because their disposition of going to the operating room is likely going to be much quicker than if I have to transport them making sure to rule out other life-threatening injuries with my other interventions using ultrasound, further imaging, and uh, reminding myself not to intubate that sick patient because I don't want to make things worse for them. Yeah, totally. I I think that if you're at our shop, these patients are probably going to go to the operating room so quickly that you don't need to think about draining them in the the ER. But man, I I would certainly have an 18-gauge spinal needle with me and a syringe on the way to the operating room if their vital signs are not close to stable. I actually keep one in my car. You never know. So let's wrap it all together here. We have a patient that comes to the ER and you're highly suspicious for penetrating cardiac injury. The first thing that that patient needs is a ultrasound on their chest to see if they have pericardial fluid. If they do have pericardial fluid, you should be asking yourself if they have signs of tamponade. That would be right ventricular diastolic collapse in an early patient, the right atrial systolic collapse and maybe a plethoric and non-compressible IVC. If that patient has tamponade, they certainly need an operative intervention, but if they need to be temporized either for transfer or if they decompensate but don't yet code, the patient definitely needs a pericardiosynthesis and ideally the placement of a catheter for further drainage. If the patient does code, your decision tree is pretty easy. That's the patient who is most likely to benefit from an ED thoracotomy with uh, a temporary repair of their cardiac injury and obviously aggressive resuscitation. Don't intubate these patients while they're alive and talking to you, but obviously a patient who gets a thoracotomy will need a mainstem intubation. Finally, if the patient does not have a positive ultrasound of their heart for pericardial fluid, then you should be thinking about your next steps if you're highly suspicious for a cardiac injury. So, You should repeat that ultrasound early and often. A chest x-ray is certainly part of management. In fact, 
if you have a significant hemothorax, especially on the left side, then you might consider perhaps there's such a large enough rent to the pericardium that the patient can't even develop fluid in the pericardium. There are certainly case reports of patients with that happening, and it's something that is definitely seen. But if you're not totally sure about your diagnosis, then with high enough suspicion, the patient will likely need an operative evaluation, and that would be with a subxiphoid pericardial window. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today! Seems you out. <laughs> bum, 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 dun, 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 something like that. All right, hey. <laughs> da, da, da. <laughs> it is fun to hear your voice on this, isn't it? Do I wrap them in cellophane? I actually keep one in my car. That's a little creepy. <laughs> This is creepy. Mark is taking a picture of me. You never know.